Father, I do thank you for your presence with us tonight, Father, and worship you because you are Lord of all, Lord of all heaven, Lord of earth. Father, I thank you because Solomon said that no temple can contain you, for not even the earth nor the heavens nor the heaven of the heavens can contain you. You're so wonderful. And Father, I thank you so much for revealing your thoughts to us and your mind to us in your word, Father. And I would ask in Jesus' name, you'll make it so clear to us all. Father, I know that every word of this Bible is for us, Lord, us to enjoy, to be made stable by, Father, to learn so that we can give you the glory. And Father, I would ask tonight, Father, that the words that we study may be used for your glory and that alone. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Last time we talked about the five cycles of discipline <coughs> to Israel, and we saw that certain nations were allowed by God to come in and to judge the Jews. Now remember, when these nations came in, it was God allowing them to come in. Tonight I want to see this. If God dealt so uh, harshly with the Jews, how does he deal with any nation that becomes anti-Semitic or Jew-hating themselves? That's the question. Because many of the nations that actually were used by God to discipline the Jews then went on in their natural strength. They didn't just stop where God told them to stop. They then decided that they didn't like the Jews either. And they started treating them very badly and mistreating them generally. Now, as soon as that happens, what's God's reaction? Now, this is vital for Britain. Because what is going to be God's reaction to us if we stop supporting the Jews? That's the question that I'm going to ask. What is going to be God's reaction to America if they stop supporting the Jews? What is God's feeling about Russia, considering they hate the Jews so much? These are questions we've got to answer. And so to, today I'm talking about the, the passage which I think best describes God's mind as far as other nations which judge the Jews are concerned. I'm going to talk about the passage called the Horns and the Carpenters. But before we do that, let's just have a look at one of the promises that was made to Abraham. This is found in Genesis chapter 12 and beginning verse 1. Genesis 12 and verse 1. And this is actually the call of Abraham, who later, of course, became Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. It may surprise you to know that Abraham was a Chaldean originally. He lived in the land of Chaldea. And here we find uh, is his calling from God out of the land of Chaldea. And verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham... Get thee out of thy country, Chaldea, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And uh, later on in Genesis chapter 14, he's actually called Abram the Hebrew. And the word Hebrew means one who crosses the river. And that was Abram. He crossed over the Euphrates to come out of his land, and then he crossed over the Jordan to come into the land of Canaan. And whenever you see a man who says, I'm a Hebrew, it means I'm one who crossed the river. And later on, when we deal with the Jews in more detail, we'll see why the Jews were called the Hebrews, those that crossed the river. It's a very important subject. Verse 2. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee 
and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Verse 3 is the crucial verse. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That's a reference to the Lord Jesus, who was, of course, descended from Abraham. Through him, through the Lord Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So I don't care whether you're an Akkadian or a Chaldean or an Assyrian or for a Bactrian or a Parthian, I just don't mind. In him, all nations are blessed. You can turn to the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. Whether you're English, Scots, Irish, Norwegian, it just doesn't matter. Praise God. American, Brazilian, all nations blessed in him, in the Lord Jesus. Look at the bit before. I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse him that curseth thee. And there's the key. Any nation that blesses the Jews, God will bless. And it's true. And what a tragedy. <coughs> Our government doesn't realize it. And any nation which hates the Jews, he will, God will turn his back on them. He that curseth you, I'll curse them. That's God's principle. And if we look through history, it is a most remarkable study to see how nations which have influenced the Jews have actually influenced their own destiny. If you take, for example, the Spanish Empire. While the, Spa the Spaniards looked after the Jews, their empire was great. The moment they started persecuting the Jews, it was the end of the Spanish Empire. And they kicked the Jews out of the country. Where did they come to? To Britain. We took them in, we looked after them, and the British Empire began. And that's history. And any nation that hates the Jews has fallen. Whether you, again, take the Spanish, Spanish Empire, which started persecuting them and fell, or you go right through to Hitler's Third Reich, which started dealing with the Jews. And it was not many years before they collapsed. The Third Reich completely collapsed because of anti-Semitism. God will not stand for anti-Semitism among nations. Now there's the principle. In Genesis 12 and verse 3, I will bless him that blesses you. I will curse him that curses you. Now there it is. Let's see this in terms then of Zechariah. So could we turn to the passage that we're going to deal with tonight? Zechariah chapter 1, 18 to 21. And it's the famous vision of the horns and the carpenters. And I dedicate it especially to the woman in London yesterday who asked me to go over it because she didn't understand it. And she knows who she is and she'll receive a tape very soon. All right, Zechariah chapter 1, 18 to 21. Now let's read it through together. Then I lifted up mine eyes, and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, What come these to do? And he spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. Now, can you see that this is divided into two halves? Verse 18 and verse 19, we have four horns. Verse 20 and verse 21, we've got four carpenters. There they are. Now, it's distinct divisions. 
and I'm going to deal with the four horns before we deal with the four carpenters. Alright? So, let's, before we begin, let's just ask ourselves this question. We've got the mention of horns here. What does a horn stand for in the Bible? When God says a horn, what does he actually mean by that? And remember the principle which we've seen before, that the Bible is its own commentary. So all we have to do is look up in the Bible where horns are mentioned, and we actually can find out what horns are all about. Let's go through some passages and see them together. Daniel chapter 7, first of all. Daniel chapter 7. And verse 7, first of all, I think. Now, the book of Daniel is a very wonderful book. And, in fact, if you don't understand Daniel, it's doubtful whether you can understand the book of Revelation. Daniel to the Old Testament is Revelation to the New Testament. And in verse 7, we have a, a vision mentioned. This is Daniel 7 and verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces, and, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Right, now what's it mean? Well, fortunately, we've got the interpretation of it in verse 24. Or verse 23 we'll begin. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom. This is actually Rome, the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome that it's referring to. The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Verse 24, and the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. So what's a horn? It's a king. Notice what it says, and another shall rise after them. That's the little horn that comes out. And he shall be diverse from the first, and shall, shall subdue three kings. So you've got ten kings, an eleventh king comes out, and he destroys three of the kings. So you end up with eight. Alright, now that's the, the pattern. Well, there we are. A horn represents a king. We see it again in Revelation 17. Let's just have a, a little look at that. Revelation 17 where we've got the mention of horns. And it's talking about exactly the same empire. Revelation 17 and verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. There it is. The ten horns that thou sawest are ten kings. So a horn represents power and might on a national level. All right? Power and might on a national level. Let's see two other little passages which that knowledge helps us to understand. The first is in Jeremiah. <clears throat> Jeremiah 48, verse 25. Jeremiah 48, verse 25. And uh, here you've got the horn of Moab. It says, the horn of Moab is cut off, and his arm is broken, saith the Lord. 
And that means the king. The king of Moab is killed, is destroyed. And his arm, his might, is broken. So he's no, not going to be any more trouble, as far as you're concerned. Now, you see, that it's easy, really, when you can see the meaning of a horn. There's another passage, actually, which I like very much, in which the humour of God, almost the sarcasm of God, comes out. And I think we'll turn to that as well and make it the last passage that we look at. Amos 6, 13. The prophet Amos 6 and 13. And here we have the Jews boasting. They're boasting about something. Do you know what they've just done? They have conquered two cities near Damascus. Two cities near Damascus. All right? The two cities, I'll just give you the, their names, are Lodibar, L-O-D-E-B-A-R, Lodibar, and Karnaim, K-A-R-N-A-I-M, Karnaim. They're two very small cities near Damascus, and the Jews had just conquered them, and they were proud. Oh, this is great. You'll see why I've written those off in a minute. And verse 13, this is what God says. Ye which rejoice in the thing of naught, which say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? They destroyed these two little cities, and they're boasting about it. We've done that all by ourselves. We didn't need you to help us, God. Notice. Ye which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? And that's sarcasm. Do you know why? Because Lodibar means a thing of naught. And Karnaim, which was the other town, means horns or powers. So here he's punning, you see, and he says, Ye which rejoice in Lodibar, here we are, which say, have we not taken to us Karnaim by our own strength? <laughs> there it is, and it's very clever. And that's God. And what's he doing? He's getting the punchline over, you see. He's saying, you think you're so great? You didn't do anything by me. And he goes on, verse uh, 14. But behold, I will raise up a nation against you. All right? O house of Israel, saith the Lord. You watch out. You get proud like that, and soon you'll find a nation that you can't destroy. Right, now that's horns. So when we go back to Zechariah, let's see what we've actually got in this vision then. In Zechariah chapter 1, and here it, here it is, we'll begin verse 18. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and to lift up the eyes means to concentrate on. He is fully concentrating on what he, he says. What a tragedy that the church doesn't concentrate on the word of God the way Zechariah did. He lifted up his eyes and he saw. And behold, four horns, four kingdoms, four empires of great might. That's what he sees before him. And fortunately, he had an angel to interpret all these things to him. You've only got me to interpret them. He had an angel to actually interpret these things. And I said unto the angel, that's Zechariah, and I, Zechariah, said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? What are these? He answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Remember, please, that at the time, just after Solomon,
the Jews were split into two nations. To the north there were ten kingdoms, they were called Israel. Their capital was Samaria. So you have one nation of ten tribes, their capital Samaria, that was Israel. To the south you have the southern kingdom, or Judah, which consisted of two tribes. And their capital was Jerusalem. So these four horns are those which have scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. There are four massive empires which have scattered either Israel or Judah or Jerusalem. There are four of them. Well, our study of ancient history actually helps us now. Because there are actually five nations or great empires that affected the Jews in some way. Here they are. Assyria, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A, Chaldea, C-H-A-L-D-E-A, Persia, P-E-R-S-I-A, Greece, and Rome. There are the five. Now, the four horns are among these. Well, which are, which are the four horns? That's what we've got to decide. Well, notice they scattered either Israel or Judah or Jerusalem. And there's one of these nations that never did that. In fact, there's one of those nations that was so kind to the Jews, they gave them 200 years of peace. It was called the Golden Age of the Jews. My favourite of all empires, Greek, uh, sorry, Persia. 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 Alright, I was going to say, most of people love Greece or they love Rome. But Persia is my favourite. Alright? And so I won't have Persia, thank you, among the horns. They certainly never did scatter the Jews at all. They helped the Jews immensely. Right, so we get four horns, and there they are. Assyria, Chaldea, Greece, and Rome. Alright? Fine. There they are. Persia, by the way, had kings who were actually believers. Many of the kings became, became believers. I'm going to talk about one a little later on. There are the four horns. Let's just see how they did it, shall we? Take each in turn. Alright, now number one, Assyria. Uh, at, for some time, the northern kingdom had been under the fourth cycle of discipline. And Assyria had come in, they destroyed the land. And in 722 BC, uh, Israel was actually a very small nation indeed. In fact, it consisted of just the land around one of the mountains of Ephraim, with its capital, Samaria, stuck on top. And again, under the fifth cycle of discipline, God said to them, I'm going to scatter you, and I've raised up the Assyrians to do it. And in 722, the king Shalmaneser V, we saw him last time, S-H-A-L-M-A-N-E-S-E-R, Shalmaneser V, came and he besieged the city. Now we know from Assyrian history that he actually died during the siege. And a man took his place, a king called Sargon, S-A-R-G-O-N, Sargon II replaced him. And Shalmaneser began the siege, and in 720, Sargon II finished it. You remember, Sargon was the man that they all laughed at, because Isaiah mentioned Sargon, and they all thought the Bible was up the creek a hundred years ago, because they, they didn't know of any king called Sargon. Since then, they've discovered hundreds and hundreds of tablets. They've got more information on Sargon than most of the other Syrian kings. So the Bible has the last laugh, as far as that's concerned. 
And in 720, then, the city of Samaria fell, and all of those people from Samaria were scattered and taken away into Assyria. So there's the first horn that scattered Israel. Okay? There's the, the first horn that we're talking about. The second horn, Chaldea, now, or Babylon, if you prefer it. Babylon, if you prefer it. And we saw this quickly last time. Remember that Jeremiah had preached and preached and preached for 40 years, warning the people that they would be taken away into captivity. And in 606 BC, Nebuchadnezzar saw Jerusalem. He was riding along a ridge fairly nearby. He looked across and saw this beautiful city and he decided to take it. And it was God that had called him in. Jeremiah warned. He said, you, you Jews, you'll definitely be taken away. Let the Chaldeans in, he said. Don't trust in Egypt. Let the Chaldeans in. They're going to scatter you anyway as you won't repent. Let them in. And in 606, Nebuchadnezzar came in. Again, I'll repeat the dates. In 598, he came back again and took a few more people. And then finally, in 586, it was actually 588 to 586 BC, he came along and he destroyed the temple. And he took out of the temple all the vessels of silver and gold, and he took them away to Babylon. Now, that makes Chaldea a horn. So Assyria is definitely a horn. And now Chaldea is definitely a horn. All right? What about Greece, which is next on our list? <clears throat> now, the man who, first of all, made Greece great was a man called Alexander the Great. And he only lived 32 years. And in that time, he conquered most of the then-known world. And under Alexander the Great, actually, the Jews were very well treated. He liked the Jews. He thought they were excellent administrators. He thought they ran everything better than anyone else. And he took the Jews all over the world with him. So that every city that he went to, he took a colony of Jews to run the administration. And that was fine. But when he died of over-drinking, may I say, at the age of 32, uh, his kingdom was split into four parts. And only one of them concerns us. Actually, I'll give you the names, that I won't spell them. Ptolemy took Egypt and became the Egyptian Ptolemies. The Ptolemies were actually Greeks. They were not Egyptians. And Cleopatra was a Ptolemy. She was a Greek. She was not an Egyptian. I'm sorry to shatter your illusions, but that's the, the case. Cassander and Lysimachus took Greece itself. But the man we want, who is the man that controlled Syria and Asia Minor and Palestine, was a man called Seleucus. S-E-L-E-C-U-S, Seleucus. And Seleucus took over the running of Israel. It was fairly good at first, until in 170 BC, we get the man who was actually the horn, who scattered the Jews. His name, and he's quite famous, Antiochus Epiphanes. You've probably heard of him. Antiochus Epiphanes, A-N-T-I-O-C-H-U-S, new word, E-P-I-P-H-A-N-E-S, Antiochus Epiphanes. And 
in 170 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem with 22,000 men. And he went into the temple and desecrated it. Instead of offering up the usual sacrifices, he killed all of the priests. And he offered those up. Apparently to the Lord. And then he killed, do you remember, on December the 25th, which is Christmas Day, or is our, now our Christmas Day that we celebrate. Um, on December the 25th, he actually slaughtered 10,000 pigs, which was an unclean animal to the Jew inside of the temple. And under him... All the Jews scattered. They f fled from Antiochus Epiphanes. So bad was he. I won't go into any more detail than that, but uh, that shows us actually that Greece was a horn. Okay? The last one, Rome. The last one was Rome. And you remember that Rome uh, actually controlled the land at the time of Jesus. And in AD 66 to 73, in AD 66 to 73, Rome actually conquered the whole of the Jews. And in AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. All right, so there are our four horns. And so, notice what it says. The angel says, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. <clears throat> okay, now they're the horns. I'm not interested particularly in the horns. I'm interested in what happened to those horns once they conquered the Jews. And the answer is that in each of the four cases, they became terribly anti-Jewish, terribly anti-Semitic. Instead of just being used by God to judge them, they then decided they didn't like the Jews very much themselves, and they started beating them up and mistreating them. Now at that point, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 tells us, they come under God's discipline. And these four horns, Assyria, Chaldea, Greece and Rome, come then under the discipline of the Lord. And that's what the next two verses are about. Because now we've got four carpenters. Oh, tragic, tragic translation. It doesn't mean a carpenter. Not a carpenter at all. It's a cutter. Four cutters came along, sometimes used of a grave cutter, someone who would dig out a grave from a solid piece of rock. Or, the translation I like, horn cutters. So you've got four horn cutters here. You've got four horns. Oh yeah, but they became anti-Semitic. And God raises up a horn cutter for each one of them. You think you're so great? Do you? God's bigger than you are, and he's got a horn cutter just for you, Assyria, just for you, Chaldea, just for you, Greece, just for you, Rome. And nations today are standing, and they don't know God's got horn cutters to cut them down too. And that's what the vision's all about. Have a look. And the Lord showed me four carpenters, four horn cutters. Verse 21. And I said <clears throat> to the angel... What come these to do? What did these cutters come for? What have they come for? And he spake, saying, and could you change a little letter here? Instead of these, could you make it those? Remember that Zechariah and the angel are looking up. You've got the horns over here. You've got the horn cutters here. The angel points to the horns and he says, Those are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these, 
and then he points to the four horn cutters. But these did uh, are come to fray them. That means to cut them down. To cut them down. To cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah, to scatter it. And so now we come to this topic of the horn cutters. We've got the four horns. How did they fall? How did their empires come to an end? Who did it? Who are these four horn cutters that came along? Oh, the graciousness of God to Zechariah. Because he, he was standing at the end of the Babylonian captivity. They'd been in Babylon for 70 years. He's standing right at the end of it. And he suddenly sees the whole of history laid out before him. Well, who are they? Well, let's take the first horn. That was, uh, of course, Assyria. And let's take the first horn cutter. Right? So the horn is Assyria. The horn cutter we come to. And he's a very interesting man indeed. His name is Nabopolassar. N-A-B-O-P-O-L-A-S-S-A-R. Nabopolassar may not mean much to you. He's the father of Nebuchadnezzar. He's a Chaldean. And this man <clears throat> lived in the swamp area around the mouth of the river Euphrates. Now remember at this time, Assyria was the greatest empire the world had ever seen. There'd never been an empire greater than Assyria. No one thought that they could defeat them. God knew he could. And Nebuchadnezzar, all he used to do, sometimes he used to get tired of dwelling in the marshes. And he used to come out at times and just do a little skirmish here, there, or there. And try and just cause a little bit of friction with the Assyrians. He never dreamed, really, he could ever defeat them. But God knew the next time he'd come out of the marshes. And God arranged things. Because when Nebuchadnezzar suddenly got cold feet and he decided that he wanted to move out of the marshes and come further up into the higher, drier land, God also arranged for two other great nations also to decide that they wanted Assyria as well. The first of them were the Scythians. S-C-Y-T-H-I-A-N-S. These are the wild horsemen from Russia, and they were wild too. Nahum talks about these. In the book of Nahum, he talked about the horsemen coming in. Nahum is all about the fall of Assyria. The whole book is about it. And the Scythians and the others are our old friends, the Medes, M-E-D-E-S, the Medes. And the Scythians, the Medes, and the Chaldeans under Nebuchadnezzar suddenly decided that they'd had enough of this, and they wanted Assyria down, and they combined forces, and they started fighting. And in 614 BC, the royal city of Asher fell. And in 612, the great city of Nineveh. N-I-N-E-V-A-H. Nineveh fell under the combined forces of Nabopolassar, the Scythians, and the Medes. And you know perfectly well what happened to the last king of Assyria. Rather than be defeated... He built, put all of his goods into a huge pile. He tied all of his slaves and his wives to the side. He put his throne on top and sat on it. And then he got a man to strike a match, or whatever they had in those days, and he set fire to the whole lot. And they died on the, the biggest bonfire that history has ever known. And the whole of the wealth of Nineveh went up in smoke. All right? And historians are amazed 
because within a few years there were no Assyrians left anywhere on the face of the earth. Never ever in the whole history of mankind has an empire so completely collapsed as did the Assyrians. And history has no answer for why they collapsed. Only six years later they couldn't even produce an Assyrian army of the people that had run from Assyria. And travellers passing by Nineveh, with Xenophon tells of a group of travellers who stopped to camp at a certain place. And there was a mound, a rubbish mound, over on the horizon. And they didn't know what it was. And the guy said, oh, that's what's left of Nineveh. It was just a rubbish heap on the horizon. And uh, actually the Assyrians still, they do not exist anywhere in the world today. Syria, the nation Syria today, does not come from the Assyrians. It's a different nation altogether. They're completely finished. Why? Because God had a horn cutter to cut them down. And the first horn cutter then is this man, Nabopolassar, whose son, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was going to be so famous. Alright? Right, that's the first horn cutter. Now we come to the second horn cutter. Now remember that the second horn is actually Chaldea. And the Chaldeans came in with Nabopolassar's son, Nebuchadnezzar. And so we come to the place where we get the second horn cutter, all right, who comes along and tries to cut down the great uh, empire of Chaldea that had built up. And he's a marvellous man. His name is Cyrus the Great, King of Persia. Cyrus the Great, King of Persia. C-Y-R-U-S. C-Y-R-U-S. Cyrus the Great, King of Persia. Alright? He's the second. Now, could I just say here, Isaiah had prophesied about Cyrus. Cyrus became a believer because he was shown that he fulfilled the word of God. What a dramatic thing. Long before Cyrus had ever been born, Isaiah was writing about him by name. Praise God. Let's have a look. Isaiah, chapter 44. Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. And verse 28. Here it is. That saith of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundations uh, shall be laid. And over in 45 verse 1, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him. I will open the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates. Remember that, I'll be dealing with that in just a moment. The two-leaved gates. And the gates shall not be shut. And it goes on. And verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Because I love Israel and the Jews so much, I have called you by name, Cyrus, before you were even born. That's what he says. Alright, now let's have a look at Chaldea. By the time the Chaldean Empire was just really 50 or so years old, it had become very anti-Semitic indeed. It hated the Jews. And the king uh, of Chaldea was a man called Nabonidus. These are lots of new names, but they're worth learning because as you go on through the Bible, you need to understand this history to understand it. Nabonidus, N-A-B-O-N, 
IDUS. And he was very keen on archaeology. He spent all of his time out in the desert digging up remains. And when he was away, he used to leave his son in charge. His son is more famous than he is. His son is called Belshazzar. Belshazzar, as we find him in Daniel chapter 5. And Belshazzar actually hated the Jews very much indeed. And God was going to cut him down. God was going to actually come in and destroy the Chaldean Empire. We find the glorious story of it in Daniel chapter 5. So could we turn to Daniel chapter 5? Daniel chapter 5. I spend a bit of time on this because I think it's worth dealing with in some detail. Daniel chapter 5. And they're having... Actually, a drunken party. Remember that the Persians are all around the city. They besieged Babylon. But the people aren't worried. Babylon was a massive city with huge fortifications. They thought those Persians would never get in and, and defeat us. They knew that they were safe. So inside, they were living it up. And here's Belshazzar. Belshazzar, the king, he was actually regent at the time, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, notice this, this is blasphemous, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines, drank in them. Remember, all these vessels represented the Lord Jesus. They carried blood normally, which represented the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these people were going to use them for their party. And that's blasphemous. And what happened? Verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone. And here's the beginning of the judgment of God. Verse 5. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now what the kings used to do was this. They used to write all the things that they'd done in their lives on the plaster on the wall of their palaces. And their latest exploits, at every party, they used to put their candlestick in front of it so that everyone could read it. All right? And so you've got a whole wall of blank plaster, and you've probably got a whole wall absolutely full up of his exploits, and he's going to fill up the next wall as well. And here's the candlestick standing by his latest deeds. And all of a sudden, Belshazzar sees a hand appear from nowhere. And it starts writing in the plaster where his next great exploit was going to go. And the candlestick meant that everyone could read it because it was lighting it up. And it starts writing. But not any message like had been written before. God had a special message. And of course, here we, we get the king's reaction. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him. So the joints of his loins were loosed. He started, his knees started knocking. That's what it means. Knees started knocking. And his knees smote one against another. There he is. He's absolutely quivering and shaking about this. Now he brings in all the astrologers and all his wise men to try and decipher what is said. And you know that they couldn't do it. 
And finally, he has to bring Daniel in on it. And verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself. He's offered him a reward for getting the meaning of what was written on the wall. Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king, and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king, he's going to get his message in first. O thou king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom, and majesty and glory and honour. God gave you it, gave your father it. And for the majesty that he gave him, all the people, nations and languages, trembled and feared before him. Whom he, would, uh, whom he would, would, he slew, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he set up, and whom he would, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointeth over it whomsoever he will. And Nebuchadnezzar, as you know, actually became a believer and published the first tract ever published, <clears throat> Daniel chapter 4. All right? Verse 22, and here's the warning. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. You haven't humbled yourself like Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. Verse 23. <clears throat> but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver, of gold, of brass, iron, wood and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written. Mene, mene, teko aparsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Teko, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Perez. And Perez, by the way, is a play on the word Parsi, which means Persian. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And verse 30 in that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. Verse 31, And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. He was the uncle of Cyrus. While Cyrus went on to conquer more, he was left in charge of Babylon. All right? Overnight, the Persians managed to get into that city without a shot being fired. The king was still drunk. No one had warned him. How did they do it? Babylon had huge walls. It had two series of walls going round it. It had the river Euphrates going right down the centre of the city. And to stop people getting in, it had two leaved gates, which we saw earlier in Isaiah. And they were so designed that the force of the Euphrates actually kept them closed. So you couldn't open those gates at all. And there were grills in them so that the river could come through. But no one could get in. And Cyrus was a genius. What he did was this. He put his, half of his army all around the city. The other half he took beyond the mountain, further up river, and he started digging a huge lake. And he dug, dug and dug and dug until he thought it was large enough. And then as soon as he knew the party was going on, 
All they did was they dammed the river Euphrates so that it started flowing into the lake that they dug. It took years to dig it. And so, beyond the dam and in the city of Babylon, the river Euphrates started going down and down and down. And soon it was dry. And all they did, they got into the river bed, they walked along, opened the gates, and walked right into the centre of the city. And without a shot being fired, they got in to the Chaldean Empire. And overnight, the whole of the city was taken by the Persians without one bow or arrow, or whatever they had, being fired. <clears throat> That's a horn cutter, if ever I've seen a horn cutter. Praise God. Getting into the city without a shot being fired. And they thought they were safe. It doesn't matter how well fortified a nation is, if God has decided you're going to be cut down, you will be cut down. Hallelujah. He will find the way. Glory to Jesus. Alright, now there is Cyrus the Great, and one of the great horn cutters. Hallelujah. Great Persian. Praise God. Alright, now let's uh, just see that in two passages. First of all, Isaiah 47.1, where we get the warning to Babylon. You see, God even warned Babylon that they'd fall. Isaiah 47.1. Alright, Isaiah 47.1. Here it is. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground, there is no throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal, uncover thy locks, make thy leg bare, uncover thy thigh, pass over the rivers. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance and will not meet thee as a man. Verse 4, as for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. And so it goes on. Alright, there's the warning. The other one is in Jeremiah 50. Actually, there are so many chapters that deal with the judgment on uh, Babylon. There are too many. Both Jeremiah 50 and 51 deal with uh, Babylon. Let's just take three verses in it. And here, I've chosen these three because the Syria is mentioned. And here they are. First of all, what's the state of Israel? Israel is a scattered sheep. There we are. That's the fifth cycle of discipline. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria hath devoured him, and last this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, hath broken his bones. Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I have punished the king of Assyria. And I will bring Israel again to his habitation, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan, and his soul shall be satisfied upon Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days, and in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none, and the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I reserve, saith the Lord. That's Jeremiah fifty seventeen to 20. Alright? Now there it's actually saying, he's going to judge Chaldea just as he's judged Assyria. And then Israel will be back in fellowship, and they'll come back to the land. Okay, now that's the second horn cutter. The third horn was Greece. The third horn was Greece. Who cut them down? Who cut them down? Well, <coughs> the Greeks ruled Palestine until actually the Romans came in. First of all, the Romans took the Ptolemies out of Egypt, 
took away all the other kingdoms, and finally, in B.C. 63, a Roman a general called Pompey, or Pompey, P-O-M-P-E-Y, came in, and he took all the Greeks out of the land. And there's our third horn cutter. This Roman general came in, and he scattered the Greeks. Praise God. Hallelujah. These Greeks have mistreated the Jews terribly badly, very badly indeed. And so finally, the Romans were used to come and finally judge, uh, by Pompey, the Greeks themselves. Okay, okay, so after BC 63, the Romans ruled in Israel. And 63 years later, to obey the Romans, Joseph was in Bethlehem. And he was actually being registered under the Romans. Well, it was Pompey who was the first Roman who came in to take over after the Greeks. And Jesus was born 63 years later and was obeying the Roman law that came in. Okay, now there's the system. So then, that introduces us to the fourth horn, which is Rome. Alright, the fourth horn then, which is Rome. <clears throat> Alright, and as we've seen, the, the Romans actually destroyed Israel and treated them extremely badly indeed. And in fact, by 135 AD, the Jews had been completely scattered. Uh, the Jews were very proud, of course. And in Masada, uh, which was a high plateau, they actually committed suicide rather than give in to the Romans. But nevertheless, the, the remnants of them were scattered all over the world. And from 135 AD onwards, no Jews, or very few Jews anyway, were actually in Palestine. Okay? Now, then that's the fourth horn... Who actually destroyed them? Who destroyed the Roman Empire? In the third series of talks on prophecy, I'll be dealing with this in more detail, actually, what is the Roman Empire, when's it coming again, and things like this. But actually, it was destroyed because uh, about 400, and just after 400 AD, uh, groups of nations started coming in and destroying the Roman Empire. The Huns, H-U-N-S, were about the first, the Vandals, they have wonderful names, V-A-N-D-A-L-S, the Vandals, came in. The Ostrogoths, O-S-T-R-A-G-O-T-H-S, the Visigoths, it's a nice name, V-I-S-I-G-O-T-H-S, the Visigoths came in, as well as other hordes, wild hordes. But who, then, would I say is the horn-cutter? Well, I choose a man who was a German, one of the German tribes. What they did, they put the last emperor who was on the throne in 476 AD, 476 AD, was a young boy. They couldn't get anyone to take the throne, so they chose him. They gave him the imposing name of Romulus Augustulus, after the founder of Rome and after the first emperor, Romulus Augustulus. And, and actually, it was a German chieftain who came in. His name is Odovaker. O-D-O-V-A-C-E-R. Odovaker. Although sometimes the V is missed out, and it's O-D-O-A-C-E-R. Odovaker. Who came in, and in 476 B, uh, AC, AD, 476 AD, he actually took Augustulus from the throne. And that was the official end of the Roman Empire. 
So if I'm looking for a fourth horn cutter, I think I'd choose Odovaka. But I don't mind if you choose one of the Vanfields or the Visigoths or the Ostrogoths or one of the Huns. I don't mind. We've got four horns. We've got four horn cutters. Praise God. The four horn cutters, Nabopolassa, cut down Assyria. Cyrus the Great cut down Chaldea. General Pompey cut down Greece. And Odovaka cut down Rome. Praise God. There they are. And remember, there's a lesson in it. The lesson for every nation of this world. He who touches the Jew is touching the apple of God's eye. Woe betide the nation that starts cutting the Jews down. Because as soon as that happens, they themselves will be cut down. Now that's the glorious message, really, of Zechariah. Because the, the obverse is also true. He who blesses the Jews blesses himself. Praise God. Marvellous. And if this country started supporting the Jews, we would find our economy would start getting right. We'd find that the violence would begin to stop. We'd find a bit, uh, well, th that we could actually relax in our land and have peace wherever we walked. We wouldn't be afraid anymore. If only we'd start loving the Jews instead of hating them. And history should teach us something that any nation that comes against the Jews is actually coming against themselves. These four verses in Zechariah, so important, yet so neglected, they should be preached from every pulpit in this land. And the message is, you could be blessed by blessing them. And we as Christians must pray for Israel every day. We must ask God that there's going to be a revival in the land. We must ask God that these people are going to turn to their Messiah. They're going to see that Jesus is the one that they rejected. That the fifth cycle of discipline came in because they rejected Jesus. And that all they'd have to do is turn back to him. And the land of Israel will dwell in safety. Will dwell in prosperity. Not having a 400% inflation rate or whatever they've got. And they'd know peace and security on every side. And every nation will be confounded by the Jewish nation, because the Lord God of Israel would reign there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of Israel, who is God of Israel. Hallelujah. And what a blessing there is in store for Israel. Terrible things are ahead for Israel. But in the end, those who believe are going to come through into a glorious place. May we pray for Israel. May we love every Jew that we meet. And give them the gospel faithfully, even as Jesus would have done. Amen.